Okay, so tonight is going to be, could be perceived as a little technical. Uh, (laughs) But, okay, um, it would be ideal if you could memorize everything we talk about in class, okay? But I know that's impossible. And it would be impossible for me, it's impossible for, for you, I'm sure, unless you're like a super genius, which I'm not. But if you don't, as I've said before, if you don't remember all the specifics of what we're talking about, that's fine. But you got to lock into the concepts. And then as you're studying the Bible in years to come, you're reading other things, it'll start to come back and it'll, it'll ingrain within you. So anytime you learn something new as a student, I don't care if it's mathematics or biology or chemistry, there's always that initial, whoa. But the more you hear it, the more you read it, the more you think about it, the more you practice it, it becomes like old hat for you. And I, I, uh, an illustration that I often use is the, the first week I was in Bible college, a fall of 1991, and I was given this thick textbook, Miller J. Erickson's Systematic Theology, for my homework. And I was reading, and I, I grew up in church. I thought I knew a lot about the Bible, actually, as an 18-year-old. I came to find out I knew very little. So I'm reading this book, and I'm th- like paragraph after paragraph, page after page, and, and then I, I finished my reading, and I thought to myself, I didn't understand like anything, like none of it. Whereas now I could pull that off the shelf, and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of basic, to be honest. So you know, each of you has a career, uh, some expertise in a certain area. You could think back to when you first learned whatever it is that you're now paid to do or an expert at and probably tell similar stories. Um, That when you first learn something, it can kind of be overwhelming. But uh, my thinking is if someone else can learn it, I should be able to learn it if I at least have average intelligence. And all of you, with, with few exceptions, have at least average intelligence. So I have, I have uh, high confidence in you, Jay. So, <laughs> so that was for Jay. And it would have been for Joe, but he gave me a shirt tonight. So, Okay, so what we're going to be talking about tonight, essentially, is how do you handle difficult sayings, difficult phrases, and certain key words in the Bible that may require a little more study than a surface reading would allow you to to understand. So we're going to start with difficult words and sayings. And again, don't feel you have to sort of remember all this, but you probably will be able to think of examples. I'm going to provide you with some in the Bible that will illustrate this for you. So as, as you know, or you should know by now, The Bible is not written flat, using the same kind of language, the same genre of literature from one cover to the other. Think of the Bible as the Word of God, but then just set that aside for a moment. And let's just say we're in a class on ancient literature, and we're studying this book called the Bible. Well, if you were to to read it just as the Bible, an ancient book, your teacher would need to familiarize you with several things. Who wrote it, where it came from, what language it was written in, how it was transmitted into your language, what kind of literature it is, and so forth and so on. We all did this in high school when we studied Shakespeare. I mean, it wasn't that much fun, but I'm sure we all studied Shakespeare in high school and other literature. 
And when you study ancient literature, and that's certainly nowhere as, Shakespeare is nowhere near as old as the Bible, you sort of have to orient yourself to the writer's style, unique language, use of figures of speech, and all that kind of thing. And for whatever reason, because the Bible is God's word, we tend not to do that. We just kind of read it flat. And if you take nothing else out of this course, I want you to learn to read the Bible as literature once again. It is God's word. We're not minimizing that. But it's also literature. And therefore, it is subject to the conventions of language. So if you're going to hear from God uh, in the fullest sense, sorry, but you have to become somewhat of a student of literature. You might not have liked it in high school, but you have to become a student of literature and language if you're going to grow as a Christian. Because God chose to write a book and to deliver it to us. doesn't mean you need to be a grammatical expert, literary genius, but you have to have some basic knowledge of literature and genre to study the Bible properly. In the Bible, we have difficult words and sayings. And Roy Zuck wrote a book on biblical interpretation. Most of the preliminary stuff I'm going to be sharing with you is from, from his book. He helps us to understand how we interpret what we call figures of speech, which is the first kind of difficult saying that we're going to talk about tonight, figures of speech. Um, he begins with a discussion about the purposes of figures of speech. Why, does God, why doesn't God just write the Bible in a flat, sort of boring, non-descriptive linguistic style so there's no confusion? Well, there's actually several reasons why figures of speech benefit us in our right reading of the scriptures. It adds color and vividness. When you have a conversation with someone who's interesting to listen to, it's probably because they're going to use figures of speech and maybe some jokes and give illustrations. It's the diversity of language that holds our attention to a greater degree than the content. Sorry, we're we're a little shallow maybe, but that's true. So even in preaching, uh, I can just get up and rattle off doctrinal platitudes, but I know that's not going to hold your attention to the same degree as if I put some turns on some words and conjure up some new words for you maybe you've never heard before to expand your vocabulary and use illustration and uh, plays on words and puns and all that kind of stuff. You have to learn to do that if you're going to be an effective communicator. And the Bible does that. It, it pulls us in because there's color, there's, there's vividness there. An example of this would be in Psalm 18, verse 2. We won't have time to look at all the scripture references, but God could have said, you know what, I'm really strong and you need to obey me. Well, that's a very true statement, but to lock that thought down in your head, uh, it says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Those are all figures of speech. God is not literally a rock. He's not literally a stronghold where you run to in times of battle. But those figures of speech conjure up ideas and help the the concept of God as one who is secure and solid and stayed to implant within your mind and your heart. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 6, God could have said, watch your mouth. But instead... Uh, He says, the tongue is a fire, 
a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's a lot more vivid and memorable and attractive in the sense that it draws your eyes to it. I mean, it's not an attractive truth. It's kind of offensive, actually. But it draws your eyes to it in a greater way than watch your mouth, right? Uh, figures also make abstract or intellectual ideas concrete. So we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 33. And uh, let's just see what it says there. Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is our dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Now, dwelling place is something that I can kind of relate to and envision as a creature of a physical planet. I, I'm, it's hard for me to think purely in spiritual terms, to picture God as uh, comforting. Okay, well, what, what would that look like in my mind? To picture God as a source of security. Okay, well, what does that look like? So in order to take those abstract, sometimes hard to wrap our mind around ideas and implant them, Figures of speech are used in the Bible to create an image in your mind of the kind of God that he is. Figures of speech also aid in the retention of whatever it is that the writer is trying to communicate. So we'll flip over to Hosea chapter 4. And in verse 16, it says, Like a stubborn heifer... Israel is stubborn. You don't have to be a farmer. You know what a heifer is. And uh, you may want to equate it maybe with a stubborn dog or a stubborn cat or a stubborn child. You could change the, the figure of speech there if you'd like. But this language aids in retention. It helps me to remember how God views stubbornness. Stubborn animals irritate human beings. And... Stubborn people irritate God. So aids in retention. <clears throat> um, figures also abbreviate or punctuate an idea. We can go to Psalm 23. Most of you are familiar with Psalm 23, I'm sure. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 20, 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, Period. If you were to actually communicate the, the truth behind that figure, you probably wouldn't be able to do it in fewer words than we find in verse 1. It would probably take you a paragraph to really unpack that if you're just using plain language, to nuance it. But you think shepherd, especially for the ancient per reader, most of whom probably were shepherds or had shepherds as brothers or cousins or whatnot, that automatically communicated in a very short way a big idea. And then figures also encourage reflection. So we'll go to um, Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 1. And uh, we'll look at verse 8. Okay, so Isaiah 1, 8 says, And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, 
like a besieged city. Now, my wife's going to be able to relate to that because when she was a child from the age of seven onward, her mother dragged her off into the cucumber fields and she picked cucumbers all day. Um, so she may be able to relate to that because of her background better than some of us, but just picture a, maybe a little booth, a little shack out in the field that houses a temporary worker or that you go into for lunch when it's sort of hot out after having uh, harvested the grain. This is the imagery that God uses to communicate particular truth of abandonment. So it, it encourages reflection. You're supposed to sort of think about that a little bit. So these are some different reasons why the Bible uses figures of speech. But figures of speech can get you into trouble if you misinterpret their meaning. So this is why, again, we have to understand a bit about figures of speech. So the next thing we need to talk about then is the difference between literal and figurative. Evangelical Christian, God. It's inerrant, it's inspired, it's infallible. We talked about that as an assumption we bring to our study of the text. But sometimes we overuse the word literal in an effort to try to communicate to people we actually believe what the Bible says to be true. Well, believing what the Bible says to be true, hear me clearly on this, and taking it literally are not the same thing. In fact, to take the Bible truthfully, sometimes you cannot take it literally. But what this requires is that we understand what the word literal means. Because if your definition of literal is true, it's true, well then of course we believe it's literal. But that's not the definition of literal. The definition of literal is, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no figures of speech, there's no poetry, there's no parallelism. It's just flat. It's just plain, unadorned language. And we know it's not. So let's talk about the difference between figurative versus literal. Figurative language is literal, but in a figurative way. So here are some things to consider. There's six of them. When you read the Bible, it is true that the majority of it is normal language. We'll just call it normal language, unadorned language. And so if you want to use the literal that way, generally when we read the Bible, we start with an assumption that what we're reading is literal, unless there's a good reason for doing otherwise. Now, the reason why we can say that is because literal is the more normal way of communicating. And most of it is along that line. So we start with that basic assumption. Okay, If I'm reading the text, I'm probably going to, if I know nothing about the book, nothing about the author, I'm going to step into the text and I'm going to approach it with the assumption it's literal. But then right away, I'm going to be looking for any clues or cues that would indicate to me, well, maybe it's, maybe it's not literal but I need to start someplace. So here are some reasons why you would move from literal to figurative. Sec and this is point 2C. The figurative is intended if the literal were to involve an impossibility. So an example of this would be Jeremiah. Uh, we'll go to Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 18. And behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Israel, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. Really? God's going to make people into bronze columns? I mean, obviously not. So there's a, I mean, God could do it. We're not saying it's impossible in the sense that God couldn't do it. But common sense suggests that 
God is not speaking literally. He's going to take people and make them into a fortified city. So you, you move from the literal if, if it involves an impossibility. Uh, closely tied to that, you move from the literal to the figurative if it involves an absurdity. So we'll go to Isaiah 55. And we're going to look at verse 12. Isaiah 55, 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Hey, like, did that ever happen? Like, did, did God lie? Did God make a mistake? No. I mean, an, an agnostic or an unskilled reader of the Bible who's a skeptic to Christianity might read that and say, well, there, that's, that's, a simple, that's an example of absurdity in the text. Did that ever happen? Well, no. Well, then why does it say it? And you're going to need to be able to explain it's a figure of speech. And here's why, based upon literary conventions. There's no trees clapping their limbs together. There's no mountains singing. You move from literal to figurative if it involves an absurdity. That's an absurd scene. But it communicates a certain truth. And we'll get to that later, how we determine that. Um, the figurative sense also is to be adopted if the literal would involve an immoral act. So um, an, an example of this might be um, when Jesus offers communion to his disciples and says, this is my body and blood. Really? <laughs> like a Jewish rabbi is going to be encouraging people not only to drink blood, but human blood and to cannibalize him? Obviously not. So that would involve an immoral act. Or we move from figurative or literal to figurative, if an explanatory note follows, which explains what has previously been said. So uh, Ephesians 2.1 talks about us being dead. And if that's all you have, we're like, well, okay, we're dead. Like I, I'm living, I'm breathing, I'm reading this. In your trespasses and sins. Okay, so he's using the word dead there, not in the sense of I'm physically dead. I'm clearly not, I'm reading it. But he's using in trespasses and sins as an explanatory note to explain what you just read. So then, okay, he, the idea of death in that text is non-literal in the sense that he's not talking about we're currently physically dead. There's another kind of death we believe in as Christians. There's a spiritual death. Or finally, the figure is accompanied with a qualifying adjective. So we'll, we'll use the first Peter example. And uh, go to chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone. Now, if you just said, as you come to him, a stone, that would be a little odd. But living is the adjective that comes before the noun, the descriptive word. It's a living stone. So right there, that tips you off as a figure of speech, because there's no such thing literally as a living stone. There might be living rocks. Okay. But there's no such thing as a living stone. Okay. Nancy like Nancy liked that one. Okay. So um, that's those are just some examples of the difference between literal and figurative, and hopefully those examples sort of help you to see the differences and to differentiate between that. When someone says, oh, I, I believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible, oh, do you really? <laughs> 
Let me give you some examples. And it will quickly dissuade them. In the old days, uh, well, I should say the old, it wasn't that long ago, 15, 20 years ago, um, dispensationalists, people who believed in a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapture, those of you that were in Revelation there last fall would know a little bit about this, used to say, well, we've arrived at our opinion because we take Revelation literally. Like, Revelation is the last book you take literally. (laughs) There's almost no literal language in it. Now, there's figures of speech, which when cleared and understood, provide you with literally with truth. So we're not saying by non-literal that it's false, it's obscure, it's fake, it's secondary, but it is by definition non-literal language. So nothing wrong with being a dispensationalist, but don't use the argument, well, we, we prefer that because we take it literally. And you know, we, we take the thousand years literally. And if you don't take the thousand years literally, you know, you're, you're obscuring the Bible. Well, do you take the seven spirits of God literally in chapter 3? Well, no, that's the Holy Spirit. Oh, so you take seven symbolically there, but you take a thousand literally later on. Why? You have to answer that question. So you also have to be consistent in your interpretation of Scripture. So let's look at some figures of speech then. Um, Figures of comparison. I think you have most of this in your notes, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so figures of comparison. So just look ahead a little bit. So uh, 1C, we have figures of comparison. We're going to give you some examples. Figures of substitution. Figures of omission or suppression. uh, Figures of overstatement or understatement. Figures of inconsistency. Figures of sound. Okay, so these are some different categories that... um, people who study grammar and literature have devised to take all these figures of speech that we could possibly talk about and and put them into headings or clusters. Now again, you don't need to remember all this, but I think if you understand what's being said, you're just going to intuitively read the Bible in a much better and clearer way. So let's think about figures of comparison. There's three. There's simile metaphor, and hypocatastasis. Okay, that's a difficult one. A lot of letters there. So simile. Um, a simile is a comparison in which one thing explicitly resembles another, and you know it because in the, in the sentence or the phrase, you'll see the word like or as. An example of this is you people are like dogs. Well, we know that's a, a sort of a, a crass way of a pious Jew referring to an unrighteous Gentile. You're like dogs. You're not literally saying that they're you know, lower on the scale of life and they're canine, but they're like dogs. That's a simile. You're comparing one thing to another. That's a figure of speech, but more specific, it's a figure of comparison, and more specifically, it's a simile. So if you want to remember the word simile, think similarity, or a word something like that. Um, Then metaphor is a comparison in which one thing acts like, or is like, or represents another, and oftentimes uh, there's a sense of... um, uh, you don't necessarily find the words to be, but 
there's a sense of to be in the sentence. An example of this is, you wicked people are dogs. It's a little more forceful. You are a dog. So the, the, the idea there is there's a comparison, obviously, between a dog and the person he's speaking about. But it is more forceful in the sense he's saying, we well, are acting like it or you, you represent this other creature. And then the hypocatastasis, I think I'm pronouncing that right, is a comparison in which the likeness is implied by direct naming. You dogs! It's more forceful, you see. It's more direct. It's more blunt. So, you don't need to remember the word simile, metaphor, or hypocatasis. But what you do need to learn to look for in the Bible is when you're reading a figure of speech, ask yourself, is it possible that this figure is being used as a comparison to something else? And what, what is the comparison? So using this example of dogs, you would need to understand a little bit about the Hebrew mindset, cultural mindset, toward what? Dogs and toward Gentiles. Now keep in mind, we also got to make a bit of a cultural jump here because most of us have a different notion of dog than they would. And here's a classic example, Rhonda's binder. This would be very offensive. This would be very offensive to an ancient Jewish person. Okay. See, the, the 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 figure of speech just wouldn't work. You know, figure of speech just wouldn't work. Someone calls me a dog. I'm like, well, yeah, that's true. I'm like a Saint Bernard. You know. Um, you go to other countries. Um, I'm thinking of Mexico, and. Um, China, I didn't see any dogs. Same joke there, but uh, so, so I didn't. But in uh, in Mexico, the dogs sort of are half domesticated, half not. Like you don't really, maybe you own them, but they just eat garbage all day in the garbage dump. Well, you grew up in Mexico, you would know. And they all have the same name, Fido and Tiger. You know that. Right? So, so no one's gonna have a dog snuggling with in bed at night. Um, you're not going to be putting a little code on it or those kinds of things. I mean, maybe some people do, right? I mean, your dog's actually very cute. But um, here we tend to baby dogs a little bit more. In fact, there was an article in the Windsor Star about um, this lady out of Hamilton that for two years has, is Hamilton or Mon maybe it was Montreal, she's collected 104,000 signatures trying to force Kijiji to not let people sell their dogs on their website. You should have to buy from uh, a rescue agency or a registered breeder. You know, I was like, okay, well, we bought our dog on Kijiji, and it worked out pretty good. But there's a lot of people that almost think of a dog as a person. They sort of elevate it. That's, a, that's actually strange compared to other cultures. Even if you're like that, you're strange compared to other cultures of our world. Okay, Rhonda, Jennifer, um, Jill... Okay. Not, not saying it's morally wrong. We all stand before the judgment seat. Um, but it's, it's different. And so when you're, when you're looking at language like that, as much as possible, you sort of got to try to enter into the culture and say, oh, okay, they don't think of dogs like I think of them. They're sort of disgusting animals to them. 
and therefore it ups the disgust of the figure of speech when you call someone a dog. That's kind of a powerful figure of speech, right? So you got to think about that a little bit. And then there's, a, there's several kinds of figures of speech that, that are called figures of substitution. So where you substitute one word for another. Um, let's go to Proverbs. Proverbs um, 12, 18. So you notice it in the first uh, notice it in the first statement here. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Well, most of us have probably never thrust a sword at anybody. I hope we haven't, but you've probably seen it. You know, you're jabbing a sword at someone that could cause death, if not a lot of injury. Well, he says that's like rash words. It's equivalent. So this is a, a metonymy where you're substituting one word, which in this case is two words, rash words, for sword thrusts. Because your tongue literally isn't like a sword thrust. You don't go around poking people with your tongue. It's a figure of speech. And then uh, synodoki is the substitution of a part of something for the whole or the whole for the part. Now... Uh, I need to sort of see if this is going to come through because I wrote KJV down, so I'll see how it comes through in the... Um... Uh, Luke 2, one. Uh... Oh, okay. So in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Oh, really? Like they got that in Iceland and North America and South America, and he was off in Peru with census takers? No. All the world doesn't literally mean all the world. But certainly all of what he would consider the worthwhile world, which is the Roman world, was uh, in his mind and in the mind of the writer when they recorded this. So we have a large object, the world, really meaning the Roman world. So there's a substitution there. A broader wor word is used to describe an, an actual geographically more narrow area. And again, I, you would probably... It would probably be rare that you would bump into someone who would pick on you on this level, but there is an apologetic dimension to this. There are people that will get into stuff like that when they're challenging your, the, the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture, and say, there's an error. Caesar Augustus never sent a, uh, a decree to the whole world, but it says it. And you're like, well, okay, uh, I never thought about that. I'm going to abandon my faith. Not that you would, but you get enough of those and it might get you thinking, right? So you need to understand the difference between figurative and literal. Uh, a merism is a form of synecdoche. Again, I, I may not be pronouncing these exactly right, but in which the totality or whole is substituted for two contrasting or opposite parts. The most recent illustration or example of this I used in a sermon is um, day and night. Um, 
Psalm 1 talks about meditating upon God's word day and night. So this is a merism in that it takes like a, a, a lunar day has two parts to it, nighttime and daytime. And it's taking all of it and substituting the whole for, in fact, what is intended to be a part. You're not literally praying day and night or you would die of fatigue and exhaustion. But it's a figure of speech in that the whole is substituted for the part. Now, why wouldn't you just say the part? Because there's something about telling someone pray pray day and night that communicates an intensity to prayer and the importance of prayer in our spiritual lives that's saying, you know, you should pray a little bit every day. Which is actually minimally what he means. Um, I mean, we all pray a little bit every day. None of us pray day and night. None of us even pray all day. None of us pray all night. None of us pray all morning. Or all, we all pray a little bit compared to the 24 hours we have every day. But there's something more impactful that elevates the importance of prayer, but it doesn't necessarily put specificity on the time of it. Uh, a similar, it's not the same figure of speech, but a similar idea is pray without ceasing. Well, how many, name one person in all of human history that's done that. And Jesus didn't even do that. So that's, it, 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 there's, a, there's some imagery there. Ahendiades is the substituting of two coordinate terms joined by and for a single concept in which one of the elements defines the other. So hen, one, dia, two, is actually the root of this word. Uh, so the idea here is that uh, two words brought together mean the same thing. So in pain and childbearing was Eve's curse. You're going to bring forth a son. Well, what's the difference? Like pain and childbearing. Well, there's uh, certainly one could say that you know childbearing is the result of pain, but they're supposed to sort of be taken as a package deal. That, you know, Those of you that are women that have children know that when you think of childbearing, you think of pain automatically. They're inextricably linked. They're just kind of one and the same. The result is great, but the process is terrible. So it joins together two ideas into one image. Um, and by the way, this answers the, the question later in the New Testament where it talks about women shall be saved through childbearing. It's, it's a reversal of the curse in Christ it's not that you're literally being saved by having kids, but by obeying God and living according to God's plans, he, he takes that negative imagery and makes it positive in the New Testament. And that by going back and obeying God, there's a sense in which the curse is removed from the woman. Um, I mean, just as it is for, for the man, but this, that particular text is talking about the woman. For men there, it talks about lifting hands in prayer. Uh, the fifth one is personification, where you ascribe human characteristics or actions to inanimate objects, ideas. Uh, we'll just look at one, um, Isaiah 35, verse 1. Um, says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. So that's similar to that other one where the mountains and the trees are clapping. 
Another example of this is Jesus is called a, a, the Lion of Judah. Um, he's called a, a hen. Well, God is called a hen, like a mother hen guarding her chicks. I remember years ago, I was with this guy. I don't know if you remember this. Back in the early 90s, there was a, a group of churches that were advocating roaring in the spirit and barking and this kind of thing. Pardon me? Yeah, yeah. So, so I remember, what's that? Okay. So I, I actually was on a, a, a pastor's trip to Atlanta, Georgia with like 50 other guys and it was multi-denominational. I got chit-chatting with this guy and he came out of one of those churches. It was fairly new at the time. And uh, it was a cordial conversation, but I can, I can remember it as clear as day. I said, I, you know, I, I kind of would like to ask you where you guys go to for your barking in the spirit, roaring in the spirit practice and your worship services. And this is his words, I think almost verbatim. He said, well, roaring in the spirit is based on the fact that Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. We haven't found a verse for the barking one yet. <laughs> verbatim. Okay. So, you know, there's a little bit of cart before the horse going on there, but with regard to the Lion of Judah, this is why this lecture is kind of important. Because Jesus is not literally a lion. And even if he manifest himself incarnate in the form of a lion, what is the logical and theological connection between that and you roaring? Now, what is it? You have to answer that question. So this is where studying the Bible properly, recognizing its absurdities, its figures of speech, is important. I mean, denominations have been founded on their inability to do that work well. And while it sounds funny, it can have certainly catastrophic results. Another uh, one, which is very common, is an anthropomorphism. Now, you probably have heard of anthropology, right? That's the study of what? Humans. Now, this actually comes from the Greek word anthropos, which is the ge generic word for mankind or men. Not like to the exclusion of women, it's just men. Morphe is the word for change. So do you, you know the, the word uh, morph? Something is morphing. It's the word change. Um, so anthropomorphism is where you change uh, human language or you take human language and you change it and apply it to deity, for instance. So when we ascribe actions or attributes or uh, visual images of, of us to God legitimately, and the Bible does it, that's called an anthropomorphism. So in Psalm 8, verse 3, when I look at, the, at your heavens, the work of your what? Yeah, hands or fingers. Well, God doesn't have hands and figure, fingers. God's righteous right arm. He doesn't have a right arm. The mouth of the Lord. He doesn't have a mouth. So we can give several examples of this where human attributes are ascribed to God. God remembered Noah. Why, why, why do we do that? 
why do we ascribe human why does the bible ascribe human attributes to god at times because on one hand that's kind of blasphemous how can you take the creator to ascribe attributes of the created to him why do we do it exactly we we just we we our our ability to know just to know something is contingent upon several things that you and I don't even think about on a daily basis. Uh, shape, sound, previous experience, c- our understanding of color. Like, does anybody remember looking out at the world at six weeks of old? And uh, Do you remember any of the images that you were experiencing at six weeks or six months of age? You, none of you know any of that. If you tell me you do, I, I won't believe you. You're... Your eyes are just as functional, if not more functional, than any of ours at six weeks. Your brain is fresh, but you, do, you have not yet structured your mind and learned to use your eyes in such a way that you can process information. That comes little by little by little by little. Now, it, in some senses, it happens very quickly. But you don't have a talking person until they're a couple years old. And then it just grows from there. You don't have a person that can identify colors and shapes and uh, spatial depth until a few years have gone by. Your mind is, it's not like your brain is incapable of it, but you, you need to structure it and process it and feed it and reinforce patterns. That's how we know. So when it comes to God, our brains, because we don't live in a, we don't uh, encounter the spiritual in the same way that we encounter the physical. God is trying to communicate to us aspects of the spiritual, which we have not had previous exposure to. So he draws language and images from the physical to try to help us to understand the spiritual. And what generally happens is as you mature as a Christian is over time, you no longer need those visual images because you you now have experienced a measure of the spiritual on a level that you've now tapped into and shaped because of your your repeated encounters with god so we could call that discernment or the spiritual life the higher spiritual life and when you've experienced that you know it's as true as what you can see so when you have an encounter with god or we talk about a relationship with god that is as true and factual for me as the fact that michelle's wearing a red sweater it's as true but it's not in the same category, and that's why someone that has not had that experience, i.e. an atheist or an unbeliever, uh, is very skeptical because their world is still limited to what they can see, what they can smell, what they can touch. what they. And the mistake, I'll just kind of go off on a little tangent here. The mistake that we often make in apologetics is we try to defend the spiritual drawing from the, the, the material world. So we say, well, I can give you six cosmological arguments for the existence of God, or six mathematical reasons, or four logical proofs. Well, no, you can't, in fact. You can do none of that. Because you're trying to define a spiritual being who's immaterial using material proofs. It doesn't work. It's, you're mismatching the proofs to the kind of being you're trying to prove. The best you can do is find hints and indicators in the tangible world that there must be an immaterial being behind it all. And then you testify 
based upon your encounter with that immaterial being that he actually exists. And that is powerful. Then the Holy Spirit comes in and does what only the Holy Spirit can do. But um, I used to believe in what's called rational evidential apologetics, that you could rationally, using evidences, prove the existence of God. I no longer believe that's valid. Rational evidences can give hints or indicators that there is a God, but they're always insufficient because God is not subject to the constraints of or the definitions of the physical material world. So when we draw upon evidences, as much as as an intellectually oriented person, I would love to be able to find some of those tricks. Uh, in actual fact, you accept God as a presupposition based upon hints and indicators. And that presupposition then is undergirded by an encounter, observation of changed lives, and evidences in the material world that there's a immaterial being behind it. Yeah, it, it points to. Because you even think about that, it declares. Well, that's a figure. So it declares. That's a verbal thing. Well, heavens don't speak. At least not in my world. The sky doesn't literally speak. But the idea of declaring there is points to the glory of. So this is where we have the, 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 the indicators. You have beauty. You've got to ask where to come from. You have love, uh, color, all these things that are not subject to scientific inquiry. Um, and those indicate a being design, these indicate, but not in the same way that you can prove, you know, a mathematical equation on paper using the conventions of math. Pardon me? It is a huge indicator, and I th it's, a, it's a convincing enough indicator that one is responsible for, but it's not the same as the indicators that we use to prove, let's say, my existence. So to prove my existence, what do you rely upon? Yeah, physical space and time. Um, it's a little more difficult to objectively prove my existence without my presence. Uh, you know, you could say, well, look, I just found something he wrote. Yeah, but that could be written by anybody. You could just made that name up. Aaron Rock could just be a made-up figment of my imagination. But you can prove me through encounter. That's the most obvious way. You, you bring the person that disbelieves in my existence into my presence. Here he is. Oh, okay. You can't do that with God. You can only point to evidences, but those evidences are not the same as rational evidences we use to prove scientific theories or that kind of thing. They're hints. Now, I'm actually quite satisfied with that because I think there's, a, there's great power in testimony in the encounter, and uh, I don't probably shouldn't take this too far because we'll just kind of keep going with it. But uh, this is to me one of the greatest blessings of postmodernism. So postmodernism is this new worldview that's been dominant in the Western world for about 20, 20 to 30 years that either downplays or denies the existence of objective data. In spite of the rise of educational institutions, the 30s, 20s, and teens of our society are actually very skeptical about the validity of objective data. They're skeptical. And um, 
this isn't necessarily all bad. Initially, when this sort of started coming out, evangelicals reacted to that because they didn't realize themselves they were products of modernism, which basically said everything's provable by scientific method. And so that's how we were doing our exegesis, our study of scripture. It's all about proof texting, proof texting, proof texting, evidences, rational thought, you know, yada, 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 doctrinal statements that are completely devoid of any figure of speech. You ever notice that? Doctrinal statements have no figures of speech in them, even though the Bible does. Because we wanted to lock everything down evidentially, according to the scientific method. That's called modernism, flows out of the rational enlightenment. Now, postmodernism started to challenge that and say, actually, there's certain things you could know apart from rational evidences, and they start to name them. How about love? Prove that in a test tube. Uh, How about beauty? You know, prove that one using a scientific method. How about value? Where does how about principles? Where do they come from? How about law? <laughs> Who says this is right? Who says this is wrong? So the the, the atheistic um, postmodernists, what they would say is, um, of course, they're not advocates of Christianity, but they would say you, you can't find truth. There is no truth. But students, Christian students of culture realize that there's an element in postmodernism which actually brings the pendulum of modernism back to the center and says, actually, there's some truth to postmodernism, and that not everything in our faith is provable using data and the scientific method. And if you doubt the influence of, of this new discovery or rediscovery upon the church, look at the church's worship music. Uh, The reason why the hymns-only people can't stand the new music is because the hymns were written using the language of modernists. Most modern Christian music is is written using both the language of modernism and postmodernism, which in fact is the language of the Psalms. And that the Psalms uses didactic language, but it also uses figures of speech, it uses imagery, it calls us into relationship. And so even the way, uh, even these you know, background things that most of us don't think about on a day-to-day basis, we're thinking about paying the bills and getting to Tim Hortons at the front of a the line. These, these broader worldview issues actually affect something as, as um, significant as evangelism and the way we worship in our churches. So uh, most of you know me well enough not to, out here and say Aaron's a liberal, doesn't believe in objective truth, and he sounds a lot like Pilate, you know, when Jesus was, <laughs> what is truth? Um, I'm, just, I'm just suggesting to you that truth is more than didactic, syllogistic, logical language, or stuff that's provable in a test tube. There's truth, when I have an encounter with Christ, that is true. It's as true, maybe more, than two plus two equals four. It's just as true. It's just in a different category of truth. And you arrive at that encounter, or you arrive at the conclusion that's a true encounter using a different uh, method than you do for the 2 plus 2 equation. Right. So, Joe? Yes. Whereas, you know, I, I think of verses like Romans 8, 7, where it talks about, you know, the person who is opposed to God, 
Right. Yeah, there's a, there's a supernatural transaction that must take place to, this isn't great language, but to sort of shape or form that part of the mind, which we call regeneration and conversion. And the roughest analogy I could use is the same with a baby who's born with like the, the perfect faculties to think and see, unfettered by disease, let's assume, in a healthy child but they have not yet developed the ability to process the stimuli that they're receiving. It takes a little while. And the same when those of you that actually can you know, re maybe remember, and you don't have to remember this. I don't want to downplay early childhood conversions. But if you can re cognitively remember when you weren't a believer and then when you were, I would be shocked if you wouldn't say something to be like, I, my mindset is totally different then and now. I just think totally differently. Well, it's not just that you filled your mind up with a bunch of truth. God has turned something on inside of you. You're no longer spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, to go back to Ephesians 2. There, there is a part of you that was dead that has been awakened. So you now have the ability to process truth in a different way than the unbeliever does. And part of that is an encounter with the living Christ. See? So, If we just follow the path of uh, modernism and rationalism, I don't even know how you read probably two-thirds of the Bible. Like, I, I don't know how you would read Revelation without an acknowledgement that God speaks through imagery and metaphor in, in a certain experiential way. I know experience is kind of a loosey-goosey word today, but it's the best word I have right now. God does speak. When I was more of a rational evidentialist, I used to, do you know the old song, I know that Jesus lives because he lives within my heart. I would never sing it. Like we get to that core, I can't sing that. Uh, because, and my thinking at the time was, that's not logical. You can't say, I know Jesus lives because he lives within your heart. But as I matured, I realized that's actually true. It, it is true. I mean, at the end of the day, I could go on for a long time arguing and debating, and I like doing it, by the way, and <laughs> proof texting and pointing people to examples. I mean, we do this at the Vine. I just get people ask me intellectual questions at the Vine. I know he lives because he lives in my heart. No, I try to answer their questions. They're unbelievers for the most part that are asking those or students that are struggling in their faith. I try to give them that what we'll call the hints or the evidences. But at the end of the day, I walk out of there knowing one basic thing. The, the, the reason why no one will ever rock my faith, why I, I will never apostatize, is because I've encountered Christ. You could, you could come up with all kinds of proof texts and reasons and rebuttals to anything I could possibly run intellectual circles around me a hundred times. You're not going to prove to me that Christ doesn't exist. I've encountered him in space and time. And that's not deniable. So I realized, you know, and, and it was sort of like, I felt I was kind of angry realizing it at first, that I, at the end of the day, um, you know, along, Karl Barth, great theologian, 
wrote all these books, church dogmatics, like volumes that probably go from one table right down to the third table here. An intellectual giant was on his deathbed and someone said, Dr. Bard, out of all the stuff you've ever learned, what's the most important thing? They're thinking he's going to leave them with some profound publishable truth. He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I mean, he just distilled it right, right down. And it shocked people. The reason why I know that story is because it obviously shocked the person that heard it and they wrote about it or preached on it or something, right? So, so when we, when we um, you know, do worship, when we organize church, when we preach, when we teach, um, especially to young people who their minds are still developing, their spiritual experience is still developing, we need to make our faith very real to them. And part of that is going to come through the stories we tell of our own personal encounters with the risen Christ. You know, so anyway, significantly off track, but <laughs> kind of important. So anthropomorphism, can you guess what a zoomorphism is? <laughs> well, a zoomorphism is when you apply, apply an animal trait to God, the hen being the example, or the lion. Those are animal traits. It doesn't reduce God uh, if you read them properly. They're supposed to communicate a truth that's difficult to, to do using normal language. An apostrophe, unlike the little marker in a sentence, um, is an address to an object as if it were a person or to an absent or imaginary person. Psalm 114, verses 5 to 7. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back, Jordan's a river. The mountains that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs. So you're, he's addressing the hills, the river, like as if it's, it's his best friend or something. It's, it's uh, that's an, an uh, um, apostrophe. And then a euphemism is a, a substitution of a mild or inoffensive expression for an offensive or personal one. We're going to go to Acts 60. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then when he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, that's not so bad. No, he died. But we do this too, right? Uh, the person has passed away. Well, they died. The person had their life taken from them. They were murdered. So you substitute it out. It's called a euphemism. Um, okay, so we're not going to be able to look all the rest of these up for time. Maybe I'll just touch on one of each, and then you can look up the rest for yourself. Figures of omission or suppression. Um, would be a rhetorical question, that would be a common one, a question that does not require a verbalized answer. Um, you probably have used these in child raising, child rearing. Right? Do you think I'm dumb? Don't dare answer that question. Uh, figures of overstatement or understatement, a hyperbole is basically when you exaggerate to add emphasis. Um, last one there, play on pleonasm is a repetition of, of words or adding of similar words which in English would be redundant 
kind of to emphasize a point, to overstate it. Uh, we, we do this all the time, right? We say, uh, that's bad, that's terrible, that's nasty, that's ridiculous. We could just use one word, but it drives it home. Inconsistency. Um, uh, oxymoron, you've probably heard of that. Um, is a combination of terms that are opposite or, or contradictory. Um, so off your body is a living sacrifice. Living, like sacrifice, you think death. Living sacrifice is an oxymoron. Figures of sound, where you use the same word or similar sounding words with different meanings. Uh, we'll look at Matthew 8. Verse 35. Uh, no, Mark, sorry. Mark 8, 35. 25? Uh, 35, yeah. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. So we have saving, losing. Um, your, your, your ear sort of picks up on saving, losing, but they're actually used in different ways than you would normally expect. And then uh, an onomatopoeia is a word that suggests its meaning, like swoops. We call it swoops because it kind of sounds like that when it's swooping down on you. So the word sounds like the sound. Um, no. Oh, I have Job 9, 26. Didn't I not give you these in your notes? Oh, okay. Oh, sorry, I would have given you more then. So Job 9, 26. Job. Oh. Is there any others you want verses for? Uh, yeah, so this is, they go by like skips of reed, like an eagle swooping on its prey. I forgot that I had deleted the verse reference. So do you want any more? Do you want some more? Or? I got one for each. You want all of them? <laughs> okay. Oh, you can come up and write them down if you'd like after. So, well, Why don't we take a break, and um, then we'll just kind of quickly finish that up, and then we're just going to spend the rest of our time talking about how to do a word study in the Bible. Okay, okay we'll come back together. Um, let me give you the... Uh, Quick fill in the blanks. Okay, so um, figures of omission or suppression, section 3C. I apologize, I thought I had given you the, um, the definition. So an ellipsis is an omission of a word or a group of words that must be supplied to complete the, the sentence. 
1 Corinthians 15.5. Zugma is the joining of two nouns to one verb when logically only one of the nouns goes with the verb. So Luke 1.64, it says there, and his mouth was instantly opened and his tongue. Well, and his tongue isn't really necessary. But. Um, an aposeopasis is a sudden break in a sentence as if the speaker is not able to finish, Luke 19.42. I already talked about the rhetorical question. Hyperbole, you can just write down the short definition, an exaggeration, Deuteronomy 1.28. Latotes is an understatement or negative statement meant to express an exaggeration. It's the opposite of hyperbole. Acts 21.39. Irony is a riddle, a kind of riddle, expressed indirectly in the form of a compliment. Although verbalized irony is easier to detect, the context of the passage often helps to uncover this in written language as a figure of speech. So you can look up 2 Samuel 6.20, first part of the verse. Uh, pleonasm is a repetition of words or similar words, which in English is redundant. Job 42.5. Um, I gave you oxymoron, right? So paradox is a statement that is seemingly absurd or contrary to normal opinion, Mark 8.35. Um, did I give you both the, did I give you paronomasia? I did? Okay. And then the, the next one is the sound one. Okay, I think that's it. So real quick, how to interpret figures of speech will determine if a figure of speech is involved. Try to determine what the image is, identify it, and then what the non-image that it's supposed to point to is. So uh, I was going to do uh, uh, an exercise I would recommend for you is to just look at the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. Because Jesus helps us there by, it's one of the few parables he, he tells it, and then he tells you what it means. You know how some of the parables he doesn't? Some of them he tells you, and he's like, okay, guys, come on over here. This is what I meant. And he tells you. So you, you know what this, who the sower is. You know who the seed is. You know what the ground is. You know all that because Jesus tells you. You don't have to guess. Even if he didn't tell you that, you could probably figure it out. But there's no confusion there. Some of the people listening would have. Maybe not so much with that parable, but some of the parables are so confusing. Jesus' disciples say, hey, we didn't really get that. And he's like, well, actually, and I'll just summarize, that's a parable of damnation. The fact that they didn't understand is exactly what I wanted it proves the point that they're spiritually blind. Because the big-headed idiots would come in and think they knew everything. Jesus would tell a parable, huh? Proves the point. You actually don't know everything. You're not God, kind of a thing. And therefore, it's a, they're parables of judgment. Uh, state the point of comparison in a sentence. Uh, don't. Here's a big one. Don't always assume that the figure means the same thing in one book as opposed to another book. It could be separated by 
hundreds of years, different cultures, different language. So don't assume that, not that you're going to find sower parables all through the Bible, but if you found a similar image in, let's say, Isaiah's prophecy, don't assume that he's necessarily using it the exact same way as the gospel writers. And then just place legitimate limits or controls on figures of speech by means of logic and, and communication. And then just one final question, an idiom. Don't confuse an idiom for a figure of speech. An idiom is is like where we... Where we we try to say something, but we use like special phrasing. So a couple of examples is, uh, I could say, oh, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call the Joneses, right? I'm gonna call them, or I could say, I'm gonna drop them a line. The second one is an idiom. It's not a figure of speech, it's an idiomatic expression. Or I might say, that's not difficult. Or I might use an idiomatic expression, that's not rocket science. It's just it's special phrasing, but it doesn't really fall into the same categories of figure of speech. Now, I want to teach you one of the most important things you'll ever learn in biblical studies. How to figure out the meaning of words. It's actually not that difficult. If you have one of these handy-dandy concordances, or an awful lot of time on your hands, you can do it longhand, but this is much simpler. So on the, on the desk in the library, I've already pulled off the shelf, they're sitting on the desk, two Strong's concordances and one NIV concordance. First three people there that want to sign them out, you're going to be ahead on your assignment, which is due next week, which is a word study. Okay? You could probably find this stuff up on some of this stuff online, or I'm sure several of you own concordances. But here's what you want to look for. Exhaustive or complete, some word like that. The difference between a short concordance, we'll, we'll use the word flesh, which I believe is one of the two words I selected for the word study. A short concordance, let's just say it appears 10 times. It'll give you like the top four. This will give you every one, every example. It's exhaustive. This is so exhaustive that it's exhausting. Um, when, you, when you look through this kind of a concordance, Uh, you will find sections that will list the 9,144 occurrences of the word ah. Okay. That's your word study for next yeah. week. <laughs> <laughs> okay, not really. Actually, I am going to assign that to Nancy because she complains a lot. So, <laughs> okay, let me just look what I, your assignment is, and then this will make more sense to you. Okay, so in your course description, the purpose of this project is to help the student learn the procedure for doing word studies in the original languages without knowing them. So, a student's going to do a word study on. You get two options. I want you to either study the Greek word sarx, spelt like in English, spelt like this. Okay, sarx. A general definition is flesh. Okay? And I actually write this down too because if you're in a concordance, if you have a concordance using Greek letters, then this would be the uh, word you're going to find, okay? And 
Um, the other one is harag. So English would be harag. This means roughly kill. So it would be uh, like that, harag. Okay, so write that down if you're going to study that word. And then you're going to submit a chart to me. So the chart is going to have, it's going to look something like this. It'll have uh, sarks or harag at the top, whatever word you pick. And let's say, based upon your word study, you find, and I'm just, I'm not telling you this is what you'll find. I'm just making this up. You're going to define, find out that it has three definitions. Okay? So you're going to have one, two, three. Then you're going to plug in an English word or two that you think communicates that meaning and then write a definition out. Same with here, same with here. Okay. So I'll just give you a little tip here. Uh, one might be part of the human anatomy, what we would call muscle tissue or organs. Your second definition might be sin nature. Okay. Harag might be intentional murder, killing in war, unintentional murder, manslaughter. Okay. So different nuances or definitions to one of those two words. Something like that, just a page. So here's how you're going to do this. Um, spin this around. I'll teach it to you using the NIV because I think it's a, it happens to be a better, better organized concordance for this. You may have to adjust this a little bit for the strongs, but you'll figure it out. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to go to your concordance and you're going to look up, let's say, the word flesh. Okay, flesh. Um, now, how many of you here have never looked at a concordance, by the way? Just put up your hands. Okay, maybe a half dozen or so. So um, I'll try to maybe visually describe what this is going to look like. So in this concordance, now this is, this is a concordance for the NIV. So this English word, flesh, F L E. SH occurs, according to this concordance, beside it has a number, 130 times in the NIV. Okay? From Genesis to Revelation, there's 130 flesh words. But that doesn't tell me much. Because that could be translated from like 15 different Hebrew words and 10 different Greek words. They just chose the English word flesh to translate you know, all kinds of different uh, Hebrew or Greek words that are kind of in that word group. You, you're following me? Okay. So what you want to do is you want to look through these usages to find one that actually uses sarks. Now, how do you do that? I mean, it's how do you know if the word flesh in a particular verse is the word sarks? 
Well, your first clue is that sarx is a Greek word. So now you're only limited to New Testament usages. Harag is a Hebrew word, so you're only going to be looking up uh, the words for kill in the Old Testament. So what it'll have is it'll have, a, I'll give you an example here, it'll have a list, and um, I'll just find one re real quick here. It'll have... Okay, so what I did was I went through my list and I looked at uh, Ephesians 2.15. I just wanted to try this one out. So look it up in your English Bible. Ephesians 2, 15. Okay, this is actually going to be a good example. So in the ESV, here's what it says. Who has an NIV handy? Okay, I'm going to have you, Winston, I'm going to have you read Ephesians 2, 15 out of your NIV. Why don't you do that first, and then I'll read it out of the ESV. So you kind of got to do some thumbing here. You're going to thumb through a few verses, but I'll, sh I'll show you how to do this in just a minute. Yeah, you won't be able to use that. Yeah. Okay, so he's going to read Ephesians 2, 15 in the New International Version. Okay, very good. Now, here's what mine says. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. So the word flesh actually isn't even the word that they, the English word they choose for this particular version. So this means you've got to align the concordance with the version. Now, I happen to know that this word flesh is in this verse because when I looked it up in the NIV in Ephesians 2.15 out of this long list so it'll be written like this Ephesians 2.15 then it gives me just a snippet of the verse so I can orient myself 
in his flesh the law, in his the law. Okay, because this is under the heading flesh, it doesn't write the whole word out. It just gives me the letter in bold font. And then off to the side, it gives me a number. So the number is 49, this is absolutely critical, 22, 4922. This is the number. Now, all you got to remember, if you're in the Old Testament and you're looking up a word and it gives you a number, when you go to the back of the concordance, make sure you're in the Hebrew to English section. If you're in the New Testament, make sure you're in the Greek to English section. That's all you got to remember. I stress that because when I was looking this up a minute ago, I, was, I couldn't find it. I realized I was in the Hebrew to English section. So I went to the Greek, Greek to English section, and I w went through all these numbers, 4,922. Okay. I know you won't be able to see this, but this is a list of all the words that are used to translate 147 occurrences of the word sarx in the New Testament in the Greek language. So while the word flesh appears 130 times in English, I don't really care about that now. What I care about is that 4922, which is sarx, appears 100, what did I say? 40, 147 times in the New Testament. Okay. Here's how it's translated in the NIV. Flesh, 33 times. Sinful nature, 22 times. Body, 20 times. Uh, sometimes it's mixed with another word, one. Two words. Human, three times. People, three times. Sinful man, three times. Earthly, two, two times. Ordinary way, twice. Man, twice. Nature, twice. Physical, twice. The world, twice. Keeps going on. Birth, once. Bodies, once. Corrupted flesh, once. Earthly, once. External, once. From a worldly point of view, once. Human ancestry, once. Human effort, once. Human nature, once. Human standards, once. Illness, once. And it just keeps going on. There's a worldly manner. One 13 times it's not translated. Maybe because it doesn't make sense to translate into English in a certain context. Sensual once, sinful once, outwardly once, perversion once, natural self once. See? So here, here's what you want to do. You want to dismiss the English word because it doesn't tell you anything. And you want to start to look at these. Okay? And all you do is you start to look at them. How do you do that? So let's say in the back it says sinful nature appears 20, 23 times. So then I go back in my concordance. This is where you might get confused, but just follow me. I go back in my concordance to the S section. And I look up sinful nature in my concordance. And I go down the list of sinful nature and I find 4922, 4922, 4922. And I start to make a list, backtracking now, from the English translation, find it in the text, and I'm going to look up these 147 usages of the word sarks in the Greek, translated in a whole bunch of different ways, and I'm going to read them in context. 
Once I've read them in context, then I'm going to sit back and I'm going to go, hmm. Okay, I'm in Ephesians 2.15. I know it's the word sarx because I looked it up in the back of my concordance, went back into it, verified how it's being translated as one man, in my ESV, for instance, looked up 49.22. How is it being used there? And the context will help me. Oh, okay, well, here he's clearly using it in a spiritual sense. It means sin nature. He's not referring to this stuff. Other time, maybe he is referring to this stuff. So you start to weed through these and categorize. So at the end of the day, you're going to take these passages, this is just in your note-taking, and put them into categories. This cluster of verses, it's talking about some spiritual sin nature thing. This category, it's talking about... um, the old man, maybe the way I used to live before I was a believer. Uh, this passage is talking about your actual body. This passage, you know, and, and you go through it and you create your own definitions based on the context. And then you would do the same thing with harag. So, having explained it to you once, I'm going to then explain it to you again. So look at your notes, page uh, 17. Okay, so here's how it goes. Ask me clarifying questions if one of these steps doesn't make sense to you. Number one, you identify the English word. What are your two choices? English word. Flesh or kill. Okay. Number two, you find that English word in an exhaustive concordance. Number three, you write down the concordance number that appears in the column to the right. Number four, if it's a New Testament word, which everybody's doing sarks, it's all New Testament, you're going to then go to the Greek section in the back of the concordance. If it is an Old Testament word, you're only going to go to the Hebrew section. Number six, you're going to record all the ways that your Greek or Hebrew word has been translated in the Bible that you're using. So you know that list I read through? You're going to write them down or photocopy them or make some sort of a list. So you're going to have those 20 or 30. Just because there's 20 or 30 words doesn't mean there's 20 or 30 definitions. They're just picking a lot of words. There's going to be about, I'll just tip you off, between two and five. And I won't say more. There's going to be between two and five. But you're going to record them all or at least have a list in front of you. Number seven you're then going to return to the main concordance and find all the verse references indicating where your Greek or Hebrew word is found in the Bible. So this is where I want to make sure that it's clear to you. If I looked up, the first word I looked up was flesh, then all that's giving me, even if I look down that list and find all the 49.22s, it's only going to give me the 23, whatever it said, usages of sarks translated into the word flesh in English but it's not going to give me the other 120-something I need. So I go back to that English list at the back of the concordance. And let's say it says sin nature. Then I go to the sin nature section of my concordance, and I scroll down the list of sin nature, sin nature, sin nature. Oh, there's a 49.22. There's a 49.22. There's a 49.22. That tells me those are all Sark's verses. And then I go back. One, maybe they've translated it as one man. So I go over to the O's. One man. I look down the one man list. So 49.22. There's another 49.22. And this is how I find all the usages of that Greek or Hebrew word in the Bible without knowing Greek or Hebrew. It's genius. 
So once doing that, you're going to ensure that you're finding the correct Bible references by cross-checking the concordance numbers behind them. There's only going to be one number for each. Then you're, you're getting, now you're getting into intuition. So you're now examining each of those contexts. What was the first rule I taught you in Bible interpretation? Context is everything. Context, context, context. Those are the top three rules. Context is king. You could say it that way. Context. You're looking at the context. The context will tell you. Context determines the meaning of a word, not a dictionary. Dictionaries come after. It's human usage that determines what a word means. That's why words change their meaning over time, because we just decide to change them. Dictionaries can't, once and for all, lock down the meaning of a word. They just describe what culturally is appropriate at the time. So then you're going to determine, this is a fancy word, the semantic range of a word. Have you ever heard someone say, well, that's just semantics? What do they mean when they say that? What, what are they accusing you of if you're talking and, and they say, well, that's just semantics? Nobody's ever had anybody say, say that to them? Um, no, when they say it's just semantics, they're saying, well, you're just playing with the word meaning. So you're just playing with the word meaning. What's that? Splitting hairs. Splitting hairs. But in actual fact... Every word has what we call a semantic range. It can only mean, some words are more elastic, other words are more locked down. Their, their meaning is much narrower. But there's a limit to the, how far you can stretch or use a word. This is its semantic range. So when you're looking at context, what you're thinking is, what is the semantic range of sarks? What's the semantic range of hareg? What you might discover is there's actually five legitimate ways or two legitimate ways or six legitimate ways to use that word and keep it within its semantic range. Okay? And there is. There's, 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 we know this from English, that there's flexibility to certain words. Um, I mean, groovy means something different to uh, a machinist than it does to a flower power kid in the 60s, right? So that was kind of a dumb one, but whatever. Um, Bullrush, or sorry, uh, we often say cattail. That's a classic example. That is same spelling, but that has a very diverse semantic range. It can refer to the appendage on the end of a feline or a bullrush or a whip. So then you're going to summarize your findings in a column with each possible meaning of the word in the appropriate references. So that little box I drew, you should give me some examples of where, uh, maybe create another column. Okay, in these four verses, this is kind of how it's being used. In these four verses, this is kind of how it's being used. So then you return to your original passage, assuming you had one. And for, for us, it was Ephesians 2.15. And uh, you determine which meaning best fits the context. Okay. So now you go, like if you, if you were starting with Ephesians 2.15 and you wanted to know what the word flesh meant, after you've done this, you go back and say, okay, now that I know there's two ways or three ways or four ways that sarks can be translated, here I think it's actually referring to the human body. Or here I think it's referring to the sin nature because the context sort of has pushed me in that direction. Um, let me just quickly... Uh, 
Um, I'll see if I can find the word harag for you to save you a little bit of time here. So 83.57, let's look it up quick. This is going to be different if you're using the strongs, right? Different numbering system. But I'm just giving you this one. No, that's Ratza. Okay, while I'm looking this up, do you have any questions you would like to ask? Okay, so every Greek word has been assigned a number in the concordance. It's just a number they made up, they plugged it in. So um, same with the, the Hebrew. You're going to have a different number attached to every Hebrew word. So there could be a 4922 that's Greek and a 4922 that's Hebrew. So that's why I'm saying make sure you look up the right, you're in the right section of the... Uh, I just want to see if I can find this for you to save you a little bit of time. By the way, the purpose of this is, in theory, if you did this well, you could write your own theological dictionary of word meanings. Because this is what, this is how, like if you've ever picked up vines, remember the old vines? Uh, I'm looking at my brethren folks because we all use those. Remember the vines <laughs> word book? Everybody had vines, right? All they've done is you look up the meaning of the word in all of its usages and you write a definition for it. That's what Vine did. So he did this longhand. Any other questions as you think about this? How many of you are confused? <laughs> Start to do it and it will... Uh, It'll become easier the more you do it. Okay, I might have it here for you. I found it. Okay, so um, the, 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 in the Hebrew to English lexicon, the word harag is number 2222. Two, two. It appears 167 times in the Old Testament. It's translated killed, kill, slain, put to death, killing, murdered, slay, kills, put, destroys, slaughters, slaughtered, ravaged, destroyed, executed, facing death, murder, murderers, murdering, obviously in its nounal form, uh, ravage, various forms of slaughter, like slaughter, slaughter takes place, slaughtered, slaughtering, slew. Okay, now the, I'm going to tell you, by the way, why I picked these two words. Um, there's a lot of debate in the church today about what killing is and what murder is. We tend to use those words as synonyms. They're probably not. It's actually possible to murder someone, and it's also possible to kill someone without murdering them. 
But people like to pull the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. Those are two different words. They actually have different meanings to them. So the reason why I thought this would be an interesting word is because your definitions will help you to weed through uh, all the passages of the Bible that talk about legitimate or illegitimate killing or murder or taking of human life or animal life and these sorts of things. So they, they will help you to debate people who say, the Bible says you shouldn't murder so you can't eat meat. It'll help you to have a response to people that say, we cannot do capital punishment because the Bible says thou shalt not kill. It'll help you to understand legal codes, why certain forms of killing or murder, if you will, have greater punishments attached to them than others in the Old Testament and in the New. Now with flesh, that's also a really important one because it'll help you to understand the nature of you, who you are. What, where does sin come from? What is the sin nature? What is the flesh? What's the role of the flesh and the sin nature in, in my sin capacity? How are people born? Are they born with flesh and without a sin nature, or is the sin nature and the flesh the same? Paul talks about, you know, what I do in my flesh, I don't always want to do, but I do it anyway. What does he mean by that? So both of these actually are very theologically weighty word studies that will affect several other theological considerations. And they'll not only help you to understand the nature of spirituality, i.e. the word sarks, but the harag one is has some huge justice and ethical considerations attached to it. Okay. So, any other questions then? How much time do we have? We're almost out. So then, um, maybe, maybe what I'll do is, um, uh, let me just repeat that middle section, because I'm a little bit concerned that you, I'll, I'll just go over this one more time, and, uh, that way I can leave comforted that if you don't do your homework, you did it, you knew how to do it, but you decided not to. <laughs> but I don't want you to not do your homework because you don't know how to do it. So let's say my, uh, um, what you can do now that I've given you the numbers is you can just go right to the index. So if you choose to study harag, you're going to go to 2222. You're going to see the word harag. They're written in the Hebrew font and in the English letters. And then below it, it will list every different way that it's translated. And the number to the right is how many times it's translated that way. So killed, killed with ED, it's translated that way 53 times. Kill, 46 times. Slain, nine times. Put to death, seven times. Okay? So you go through the list. If you see one that has, for example, Put to death once, but then it says plus two, uh, plus four, six, three, eight. All that's saying is that in order to arrive at that translation, put to death, they were using harag and some other word that's labeled as 4638. Just skip those for now. Don't worry about those. They're taking two Hebrew words and translating it as one phrase. So as you go through the list, then you're going to take this, this consideration. So now I'm going to go look up the word killed in my uh, English, trans, uh, English concordance. And it will literally give me all the occurrences of the word killed, kills separately, killing separately. And I'm going to look down the list. And what I see, like under um, killing, for instance, there's uh, 21 English translations of killing 
One, two, three, four, five. The first five are all two, 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 two. So those I'm going to look at. Then there's a 5782, a 4637, a 40. I'm not going to look up those. That's a different, different word. I'm just going to identify the two, 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 twos. And I'm going to note those verse references. I'm going to write down 1 Kings 18.13. I'm going to write down Genesis 27.42. Um, and then I'm going to look up, go back. I'm going to look up slain. I'm going to go find the word slain in my concordance. And when I get to the word slain, I'm going to look down the list, and I'm going to find all the 2222s. I'm going to write those down. Then I'm going to go back. Murdered, there's four. I'm going to go to the word murdered. Okay. I'm going to look down the list. There's all the 2222s. I'm going to look all these up. Once I got my list of every occurrence of the word harag in the Bible, then I'm going to read those contexts. I'm not going to read like 167 chapters, but I'm going to read the verse. If the verse is sufficient, fine. Maybe a couple verses before it. Okay, yeah, I get it. It seems to be talking there about the taking of human life unintentionally. Oh, this one seems to be uh, the taking of human life intentionally. This one is the taking of animal life. Uh, this one's the taking of life for someone who was judged as guilty by the priest. So it's like a, a, a legally sanctioned taking of life. Okay, I'm going to start to develop my semantic range, my different definitions. Then I'm going to kind of play with them a little bit, look at them all, say, you know what, I, I described this verse and this verse using different language, but it's talking about the same thing. It's talking about like intentional ki killing. So then what, I, then what I do, once I've figured out there's three or four or five different usages of that word, I come up with an English word in my second column that describes that. So in English, the word we would use is murder, first-degree murder. Or in English, the concept that that text is describing is what we would call manslaughter. Or in English, what we would call that is the butchering of an animal. Right? So I pick my English definitions, and then just write a little definition beside it. Um, in these six instances, uh, it's referring to intentional murder. In these five instances, it's referring to slaughtering an animal for food. In these four instances, it's referring to, you know, whatever. I come up with my definitions. And then I know how many different ways that word can be used in the Bible. And I have now created one section of a dictionary, a theological dictionary. Okay? Well, you got to get into your head. I'll say it again and again. The meaning of words is not defined by what you find in a dictionary. The meaning of words is always defined by its usage. Your existence on the planet, your use of the English language will, obviously in a minor way because there's so many of us, affect the meaning of words. The way you use words in your family will be passed on to your kids that will influence the English language. That's why our language is always changing because there's so many different people. And while your grammar teacher or English teacher might try to correct you, they're trying to hold you to the conventions that are currently in place for the meaning of that word or grammar. But in actual fact, they're not going to be able to stop the evolution of language. It's always evolving. It's always moving, not in a better direction necessarily, but it's, it's just different. Um, and some words grow obsolete, some are, um, you know, just retooled for modern usage. 
The word cool meant something different when Eric Malcolm was in grade two as opposed to when, I'm just pretty sure. He spelled it with a K. Yeah, he spelled it with a K. O-O-L-E. Yeah. Then when uh, Norwin was in school. Okay. It just changes. Okay. So any questions? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Second Corinthians uh, says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the um, the answer to that would be that we we tend to borrow a lot of information and language from other other people, and um, we just sort of assume that it's correct. And there may be times when you, you're just really convicted. I want to study this word out for myself. I want to know that I know that this word means A, B, C and does not mean something else. So this is just an exercise. There will always be people that disagree with you on everything, um, theologically or otherwise. But it's an exercise so that you now have the skills when you feel the need to, to study any word of the Bible using this very simple method. And the reason why I didn't select um, you know, a word that's only appears six times in the Bible is because you need to do it over and over and over again and you won't forget it. It just it'll just it'll just stick in your head. So I don't have to go back and look through my list. Oh, how do I do this again? I just know it, because I've done it so many times. And um, then if I want to validate or verify it with a Google thing or theological dictionary, fine. Um, but I will know in my heart of hearts that I understood this word. Uh, obviously, what I would expect in the future is that you would be studying significant words like justification, sanctification, salvation. You're not going to be studying this, thous, and thats. But these weighty words, uh, sometimes they can confuse us a little bit. Um, the other thing, Kathy, I would say is that you can look it up in a theological online or paper dictionary, but it may give you three definitions, but it may not tell you how it should be used in this verse. So by looking at your options, you can come back to the verse that you're studying and kind of be a little more confident. Generally, what you'll find is that um, a certain writer will use the word in a more limited way, or, or he'll sort of have his own usage of that word. Another writer may have so if there's three semantic ranges to a word, you know, Paul might always go with one. Another guy might prefer two and three. Paul might go with one, two, and three. So you sort of look at the different stylistic uh, variations in, in different writings as well. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, like if you're studying especially epistle, which a lot of our doctrine comes from, there's some heavy-duty words in there. Like propitiation. When was the last time you used that in a conversation with your girlfriend, right? So these are heavy words. So you want to know what that word means, and in its varied forms, if there are varied forms. Some words just have one very static, very narrow meaning. But sometimes there's some overlap. Sometimes they're the same spelling and mean nothing. Like the, the illustration I gave you earlier, the, the cattail. It's just the same letters. 
there's no overlap in substantive meaning between a feline's tail and a bulrush. None. Two different objects. But other words, James, here's an example, James uses justified differently than Paul. Otherwise, they're in conflict. One believes in justification by works, one believes in justification by faith. They, there's a different semantic range to that word. James is using it differently than Paul. But if you just read the word that starts with J, and oh, there's, there's a contradiction in the Bible. So you could find examples in James's literature and perhaps others where justification is not a forensic word, but it's more of a word equivalent to active righteousness, like the, the practical side of righteousness. Other times it's like declarative or positional righteousness. Yeah. Okay, so um, have fun.